fantasy books can raise the most intriguing questions. Is death really the end? Can two souls fit in one body? And perhaps most importantly, is there such a thing as a respectful decapitation? Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author Devin Madsen, author of the Reborn Empire series, the Vengeance Trilogy, and the Aurealis award-winning novella, In Shadows We Fall. Her latest book, We Ride the Storm, is launching with Orbit Books this summer. Devin and I talk about the writing of generational stories in a connected world, taking a scientific approach to studying magic, and her journey from self to traditional publishing. Let's jump right in. Hi, Devin. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn. It's so great to have you here today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Of course, anytime. And uh, so to start things off, one of the first questions I like to ask people is, how did you fall in love with the fantasy genre? And when did you decide you wanted to become a writer? Oh, well, um, I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was about seven. Uh, so I told my mother that I wanted to be an author and illustrator. And I desperately tried for many years to also draw pictures. Um, they're really terrible. So ultimately, I had to just stick with being an author rather than an illustrator. As for fantasy, I think it's just, you know, a lot of kids' books are fantasy. And we tend to forget that as we go through our teen years and think, oh, that's all just childish nonsense. So I think I can say that the first, you know, adult fantasy that drew me back into the genre uh, was the Belgariad. Um by David Eddings. Uh, that yeah, was my entry into the genre yeah. as well. <laughs> I think it's true for a lot of people. I, I'm not sure what it is about it that makes it a good uh, entry for people because looking back, you know, I, I don't think I would go back and read it again. <laughs> I don't think it will have aged as well as I would like it to have. So I will just, uh, you know, keep my fond memories of, of it being my gateway book. Um, but it's funny, I thought about this the other day too, and I realized that I actually never stopped reading fantasy, even though I thought I had, uh, because I read a lot of, uh, the Red Wall books, uh, by Brian Jacques through, um, my early teen years as well. So I somehow didn't think they were fantasy and I'm, I'm not sure how that works. You know, talking animals, not fantasy. Well, if I, if I remember right, there wasn't like magic in Redwall, was there? It was just kind of like medieval animals? Yeah, yeah, that, I guess. I, uh, I can't actually remember, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, it was a lot of... It was a lot of I, it's been ages since I've read the books, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was a lot of feasts. I just remember lots of descriptions of food. Yes, <laughs> I, I still have a Redwall song uh, about food stuck in my head from like 15, 16 years ago when I read those books. Wow. Uh, I don't know why. It just like lodged itself permanently in my mind. You, you, you should sing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, uh, hell, wh why not? I think it was like, uh, uh, welcome to the feast, you beast. I hope you trip and fall. I have a fat grandpa. Ha, ha, ha. He'll probably eat it all. Wow. You disappeared there for a little uh, bit. That was weird. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I couldn't hear you after, like, the first couple of lines of the song. Okay. 
Oh, you know, maybe that's a, a mixed blessing. I don't know. <laughs> like the, the feed on the screen went like pale, like it just completely disappeared. Like you were muted. So I hope you got it. Uh, that is that is weird. I, I have two copies going, uh, so I definitely got it on one of them. That's good. That's good. Because I want to hear it at the end. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well on the bright side this means this means i get the chance to like re-record it 12 times until i stop panicking about it that was brilliant though honestly <laughs> i love it okay cool thank let's you thank you let's, let's continue <laughs> uh but yeah redwall redwall was kind of a semi-entry into the genre for me as well along with probably 12 other series yeah, I'm probably forgetting a lot of things uh, that just haven't quite lodged themselves in my mind in quite the same way as those ones. But they're definitely the ones that I come back to when I think, well, these are the ones that felt uh, transformative in the way that I went, oh, that is the genre for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely feel that. Um, yeah, that between Bulgariad, well... Technically, I messed up and I read the Malorian first, but oh, between gosh. David Eddings and Brian Jakes. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, that that first book uh, was an interesting first hundred pages of catch up. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess uh, starting at age seven, you decided you wanted to be a writer, but I uh, where from there? I think I saw uh, on your blog that you have a formal writing education. Uh, no, I actually have no formal writing education at all. It's, you don't? Uh, okay. It is a bit <laughs> sad. Um, so no, from, from uh, seven, it was just a lot of obsessive writing. I used to write uh, uh, books for each of my uh, relatives every Christmas. Um, and because I couldn't draw, I made my mom do the art because <laughs> she was at least slightly decent at it. Um, so I did that for many years and, you know, they were really terrible stories, but um, it was just, I, I was so uh, obsessed with this idea that I was going to be an author. Um, and I did that probably uh, until, you know, you hit those teen years where that kind of stuff just isn't important anymore because all you can think about is like friends and gossip and how annoying school is. So I probably didn't come back to the idea of being an author until I was about uh, 15. Uh, pretty much uh, upon reading The Belgarian, I was like, oh, yeah, I wanted to be an author. And this is the stuff I want to write. I want to write fantasy. Fantasy is amazing. Uh, and ever since then, I haven't actually stopped writing. It's just been, uh, yeah, like one, one book to another. I wrote one series that was uh, 800,000 words. Uh, I don't know how that was a trilogy, but it was. It, they were just very, very big books and really terrible books uh, in hindsight. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I, I wrote that in, I think it was six to eight months um, because I was just really, when I, when I, when I want to do something, I just do it with all of my time and all of my energy. Um, so that concept of like, you know, it, it takes... Like it takes a, a, a million words or a, however many hours to become good at something. That that's the only education I ever had in this <laughs> was obsessively working uh, at the same thing over and over again. Wow, and that's eight hundred thousand words you wrote in six to eight months. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, I can't remember, I think maybe 19 or 20. So it was before I had kids. Uh, I was only working uh, part-time as a waitress at that point. So it was pretty much my whole day every day. And then a couple of nights a week, I would stop and go and be a waitress. And then I would come back and do it again the next day. And I didn't do anything else. That was, that was it. That was, that was my day, my whole week. Wow. That's, that's incredible. I guess for me to put that in perspective, that's over double NaNoWriMo pace for most of a year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I have extremely (laughs) obsessive personality. It's, and it's, it's actually kind of bad in that because I work from home and this is my job, this is something that I get, it's a hole I fall in often where I will sit every single hour of of every day that I can, I will sit in front of my computer and I will do work in some capacity, which is probably not healthy. Well, hopefully you take some breaks. Uh, (laughs) Mental health is important, but (laughs) yeah, I'm learning. I'm learning. And so that first series, is that what became the Vengeance Trilogy or was that something else? No, something completely different. So um, the Vengeance Trilogy was the second series that I wrote, Um, but a rewrite of the second series that I wrote. So the first big one, the 800,000 one, um, aspects of that I still have as part of the world history um, and... Parts of it will eventually be repurposed into a big epic I'm planning further down the line. Uh, yeah, I then wrote the original Vengeance Trilogy, which wasn't called the Vengeance Trilogy at the time. Uh, and it was very, very different and also terrible. <laughs> uh, and I rewrote that <laughs> over many years. And then I uh, stopped briefly while I had uh, kids. And then I started rewriting the Vengeance Trilogy as it currently stands when my second daughter was three months old. Uh, And that's the point at which, oh, look, my writing isn't quite as terrible as it used to be. That's kind of (laughs) nice. Well, you'd had significantly more practice than most people get, (laughs) uh, I guess, before (laughs) they initially published something. Yeah, well, that 800 thousand word thing that I wrote I then rewrote it multiple times and multiple parts of it as well so like it wasn't just I I wrote it and then I just went oh good it's done I then tried to fix it so many times (laughs) so lots of experience in fixing. so I guess you have significant uh editing experience then as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you never get entirely good at critiquing your own stuff. You know, you always need outside opinion on that, but, uh, to practice looking at your work critically is I think a really important skill for an author. So at what point did you decide, uh, you were going to officially self-publish, right? You were going to like actually launch your writing out into the world. Oh, um, you know, it was probably uh, not too long after I'd finished the uh, first and second book, I would say, probably of that series. I had kind of, uh, you know, considered the idea before um, for many years, just kind of wondering what I wanted to do with my work when I did eventually have something that was uh, worth publishing. And I had, you know, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about either side of the industry, uh, but I've always been a very impatient person. 
I, I don't like waiting for things. I just like it to happen. Uh, and so that was definitely part of my, oh, well, if I self-publish it, I can just keep doing things. I don't have to wait for stuff. Uh, and I like to learn and I like to uh, have control of stuff. And I'm really, really bad at having a boss. Uh, so ultimately I went, well, <laughs> I, sh- I should just give this a go. You know, it doesn't sound too hard. Uh, and, and I just didn't really think very much about anything and just kept going. So honestly, there was no like big, uh, you know, pros and cons list trying to think it through. I really just went, Hey, that sounds fun. Let's do that. Sadly, that is like the entirety of my decision-making for my whole life. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I guess it's better than uh, sitting around and never actually making a decision though. Yes. It it does mean that you make um, a lot of mistakes, uh, but then those are mistakes that you can learn from. Whereas I suppose you can't learn from nothing if you don't do something. Right. And so uh, when you finally decided to self-publish, I guess I first heard of your books when they were self-published and I, I really was struck by how much effort and energy you put into the editing and the cover art for your self-published work. Uh, you know, cause sometimes the, the stereotype, which is less and less true these days is a stock photo that's kind of poorly done, just slapped onto a cover, but you actually had like commissioned artwork and everything for your books. Yeah, it was, um, it was important to me because I, you know, I, I wanted to be an author, like a, a, you know, a real author. Um, and so I wanted it to make sure that I had a book that I could be really proud of, you know, saying this, this is a thing I created, um, that wouldn't look out of place on a bookshelf or a, a library shelf. Um, and, and so I went and had, well, what, what does that entail? Like, what does a publisher actually do in order to get a book out. And it was, it's quite overwhelming when you realize the amount of work that has to go into a book behind the scenes. You know, when I first started, like there wasn't, um, any really easy formatting software. So like my first books, uh, were professionally typeset because I couldn't do it. I didn't know how to use the programs that were required to do it. Um, but I, I didn't want to just format it with Word. So I had them professionally typeset. Um, you know, now there's a lot of programs that make these things much, much easier for self-publishers. But um, yeah, it was a bit overwhelming at first, I have to say, the amount of things that I needed to consider. But it was just, it was just so important to me that they look like something that I would want to buy and that nobody would go, oh, well, this doesn't really have a nice cover, but the story is great because, you know, everybody does judge a book by its cover, really, no matter what they say. Yeah, I mean, that's that's literally the entire point of the cover, right? Is to get people to judge <laughs> your book and like want to make a snap decision to pick it up. Exactly. It is, it is really the first and only, in a lot of cases, advertisement your book is ever going to have because if someone doesn't like the look of the cover, whether it's on a shelf or on a you know tiny little thumbnail on Amazon, then they're not going to read your blurb and they're not going to read the, you know, look inside. So unless you have a, such, such an amazing book, that one person reading it leads to a word of mouth landslide, which I don't think has probably ever happened in like the entire history of publishing. Um, 
then yeah. it, it, it really doesn't matter how good the story is on the inside if your cover just doesn't sell it. Yeah, an unfortunate reality, but definitely a reality. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that struck me, and from what you're talking about with your original 800,000 word unpublished <laughs> series, is that everything you write seems to be in the same universe. Uh, am I off base there? Was that still set in the same world? Uh, yeah, look, it was at my, I'm still figuring out what my world is stage, that particular one. But yes, everything I Fair have uh, written uh, and everything definitely I have published has always been in the same world. Uh, same world, same magic system. I move around in uh, time and in place. Uh, but there is a full kind of connected history. And in fact, in terms of the ones that are published, they're uh, connected within a generation uh, and all in the same vague location. So uh, those are really tightly connected. But, you know, I have uh, other works that I've planned that are in different places at different times, but all in the same world using the same magic system and the same histories and cultural structures yeah, I really like it. It it allows for a, uh, you know, a, a kind of a depth of complexity to the world building, which is just something I really love. You know, it, it does mean that I'm sometimes constrained to make sure that something new fits with something old. Uh, I can't change the rules of the way the world works uh, with a new set of stuff just because I want to, because it's set as it is. So there are definitely a few things that are like, oh, you know, it leaves you a lot less free, but I find that the, um, the joy I get in the, the enormous amount of world building and the connections are far outweigh the, the cons of it. So do you have like a giant world Bible or something that you use to keep <laughs> track of everything? No, and I really need one. I need to set up like some kind of personal <laughs> wiki or something because uh, like I am terribly disorganized and I have like, so there's notes in the back of one notebook and in the front of another notebook and on like tiny little scraps of paper that end up littered around my desk. Half of it's just in my head. Uh, the, the stuff in the books, I'll, I'll, you know, be reading through something and go, oh, oh yeah, that's right. I wrote that, 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 that's already in the world. Okay. All right, fine. I forgot I did that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I really, I really, really do need to get a bit more organized about this and at least have one notebook that's for all these things. But I think a wiki would probably be more useful because like as soon as it comes up in a book, you know, a character name, if I don't write it down, I'm going to forget that that person was ever mentioned in the book later down the track. So it gets really confusing. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine, especially like you were saying, everything has to be consistent and build off each other from series to series. You don't get to hit the reset button and start over. No, so I'm a little bit terrified that one day I'll make, uh, you know, a, an enormous blunder <laughs> that uh, that is is just you know monumental proportions because I completely forgot that I said this one thing, you know, way back in a book ages ago, and 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 yeah, um, I hope it won't happen, but it probably will. <laughs> and even if it does, maybe uh, some writer tricks and magic to yeah. make it canonical. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just, you know, 
I'll fix it somehow. Magic. Yeah, there you go. Um, and so I think at least the works that I'm familiar with so far, you have the Vengeance Trilogy and then some of the characters from the Vengeance Trilogy age up by 10, 20 or so years and they're minor characters starting in your Reborn Empire series. Yeah, that's that's about right. So I think it's technically 17 or 18 years is the gap in between. Um, and there is about a similar gap between the start of the Vengeance trilogy and the novella that comes beforehand, which is uh, In Shadows We Fall. Um, so it's kind of a generational uh, down a family. Uh, In Shadows We Fall starts with, is the story of Empress Lee. Then Vengeance trilogy, one of the main characters is her daughter. Uh, and then in the Reborn Empire, one of the main point of view is her daughter. So it's a generational thing, those three series. Oh, In Shadows We Fall is not a series. It's just a novella, but, you know, stories. Yeah, I, I like books that are interconnected like that. Uh, they're not maybe so interwoven that you have to read everything in the correct order or, like, you're missing out if you haven't read everything, but it's nice to have that connective tissue. Yeah, I like it. And, yeah, I, I, I did deliberately uh, make sure that you can start at any book one, you know, so there's there's no need to have read the vengeance trilogy before you read the reborn empire there's no need to have read in shadows we fall before you read the vengeance trilogy you can get uh, equal amounts of joy reading them in the other order obviously you get some things spoiled for you because you know how everything plays out uh, but you know going back and finding out what the real story was is always a good fun thing to do as well yeah, the real story and the real stakes too, because I, I could be told the ending of a series and not stop reading it just because you never know like from page to page uh, whose life is at risk or you know what relationships are strained or anything like that. You don't have that personal investment. Yeah, and, and how they get there. I find that that is also, you know, just knowing that it happens isn't the same as how, why. Uh, and so I guess talking about what connects all these series together, uh, I think you said before that sort of the one constant other than maybe slight overlaps of characters and geography is the magic system. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about uh, the magic system for your world? So the, uh, the magic system is uh, based on the idea of reborn souls. Um, so they call it uh, soul magic, or those that know anything about it. A lot of the, at the point at which I'm writing uh, in the history at this point, they really don't know a lot about it. They think that anybody who has any odd abilities is a witch or a freak or a whatever nasty thing they want to call them. Um, and, and they tend to get rid of them as fast as they possibly can. Um, but it is, it is a series of, of, uh, rebirths. So the soul as uh, put into bodies in the world is supposed to uh, live seven times. So, you know, it has its first life, it is reborn into another one, and it's supposed to do seven and then return to the creator with all of the knowledge is the idea that they, as they understand it. Um, but uh, there's mistakes. Uh, and so we end up with people who are born, reborn eight times, nine times, 10 times, uh, people who are uh, two souls who end up accidentally born in one body, uh, one soul that is accidentally born into two bodies, um, and all of these different uh, aberrations in the system uh, create different kinds of 
uh, abilities that appear to be magical uh, within the world. Uh, and, you know, it's like I said, it's not something that at this point the people really understand. Um, there is uh, one character who uh, shows up, uh, I think he shows up at the end of We Ride the Storm for the first time, uh, but he's sort of been in the world and in the world history of my head for quite a long time, uh, who studies these things uh, and is is trying to understand how it all works. Uh, and so he's quite fascinating and we learn a lot of how it works from him because like I said, the people don't really understand it yet. But in further, as I go further into the future with this particular world, uh, we'll start to see the effects of what happens when people understand it better um, and begin to start trying to manipulate it um, and capitalize on it, you know, because that's what people do. <laughs> yep. In a yeah. fantasy world or in our world. Uh, that's right. Um, yep. So uh, you said people don't really understand it at this point in the timeline. Do they have a working knowledge of reincarnation and it's just the aberrations they don't understand or do they not even know anything about that? No, they don't really understand that that is a, a, an actual physical law of their universe. So it is a thing that comes up in multiple religions within the world, um, but in the way that, you know, we don't always take the concepts of our religions to be physical truths uh, of, our, of our world. They don't either. Um, so it's not something that they understand. They don't remember their past lives. It's not, it's just in the same way that we, you know, some people in our world believe that we are reincarnated. They, some of them believe that they're reincarnated, but they don't actually know that it is literally physically true. It is happening. Okay. And, uh, so since we've now kind of skirted around the edges of it a bit, uh, let's talk about your new novel, uh, We Ride the Storm. Well, <laughs> new uh, to a larger audience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was self-published first. Yeah. Where does the story uh, for We Ride the Storm fit into the broader world? And why why this particular story out of all the geographic locations and the timelines that you could have picked? Weirdly, um, when I first decided that I was going to write something that came after the Vengeance Trilogy, the whole reason I wanted to do that was because I wasn't finished with some of the characters. Uh, like, there was still story to be told there um, about essentially what would happen because of the events of the Vengeance Trilogy. You know, it... it that series leaves us at a point in time where, um, uh, like, like the future of the empire is not really great, not really solid. And depending on what the, the people in charge choose to, to do about it, it could go really badly. And so I decided I really wanted to look at how that would play out. And then it became something way bigger than that because I wanted to expand it beyond just uh, being about the, the Kesian Empire um, and, and introduce the, the, the Northerners, the Chilteans that they are often at war with. And, and then all of a sudden I had, I, saw, I, I, I don't plan, I really, I don't plot at all in any fashion. Uh, so when I started <laughs> writing this series, I'm like, I knew I wanted to have uh, 
uh, Hana's daughter as as one of the main characters. Um, and I was like, oh, well, I need a chill tan, so let's let's do that. And um, and then all of a sudden, here's this Levante horseman, and I'm like, who are you? <laughs> what are you doing in this story? And so for me, it was it was like a, a, a journey of discovery of what what was actually going on here. Um, why why were these horsemen being exiled into this land, and what are they going to do about it? And it, it it took quite a while. Like I think I was through the first draft of We Ride the Storm before I actually really put all the pieces together to realize the enormity of what was actually happening here um, and what was happening back in their homeland that had led them to be here and to realize that what is actually going on is this massive turning point in the history of my world. And then I went, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess we better, you know, make some rewrites on this, uh, in this book and, and, and go again. Cause <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I, I, like I said, I don't really plot. I, I plot for, um, later books in series because otherwise things just get a bit messy. But when I first start a first new thing, I really don't have any idea where I'm going and I let it kind of discover itself. Um, yeah. So I, I didn't really choose it. If that makes sense. Like I didn't choose, this was the story I was going to tell in this particular time. I had decided I wanted to continue the previous story and then this whole thing just grew out of it. And I went, whoa, okay. Well, turns out the, uh, the the reality of what was left at the end of the previous story actually only really matters for like the first book of the series and then it doesn't matter anymore. Bigger story. <laughs> Oops. So outside of the story, more of the meta around the book, it was self-published, uh, seemed to be picking up some steam online and then... Uh, at what point were you contacted by Orbit? Oh, you know what? I should be able to say like off the top of my head exactly like the, the month and time and date that this was because, you know, it's one of those life-changing moments. But life's been really crazy. Um, uh, so I think it's probably uh, December or January um, of... So yeah, my summer of uh, 2018 going into 2019, um, when I first got an email from them, uh, I hadn't been seeking uh, any traditional publishing or uh, agents or anything for quite a while. Um, and I would just been focusing on getting uh, the book two out because We Lie With Death was supposed to be out uh, in March. So I was just, I was just doing that. And this email crops up in my inbox saying, you know, we've, we've, we've read this book and we really like it. And, you know, can, can we uh, have a copy to share around at the office? You know, like, <laughs> there was a lot of kind of little squealing but you know you do that thing where it's like when anything really amazing like that happens you you have to tell yourself nothing is going to come of this because so often nothing comes of this um so you know i i did my little squeal i kind of you know freaked out at my friends 
sent the email back. And, you know, the, the, the really quite crazy thing about this was that was the second email they'd sent me. And I'd never got the first one. Uh, oh, so, no. Was it in the spam folder? <laughs> no, it was not even in the spam folder. So this email was like, we're just following up on this other email that we sent you. And I was just like, I, I, I never got an email. And I, I did. I went and looked in the spam folder and it wasn't there. So I, I hate to think what would have happened if they had just gone, oh, she's not interested. And I just never saw the email like that just makes my brain hurt to to consider that that might have happened you know and um yeah anyway after that I was just like oh okay well if there's some interest in this and this might actually go somewhere you know I should probably really think about what what I want to do if it does um and so I yelled at uh, my friend Sam Hawk uh, uh to be like what do I do what do I do what do I do and she said, well, you know, do you want me to just run it by my agent to ask for some advice on what you should do? And I'm like, that would be really lovely. Like uh, back when I had um, uh, been querying agents for a completely different book, uh, I'd actually queried Julie Crisp because um, she just seemed like such a wonderful agent. And I'd never heard back from her. That was a big email hole as well. You wouldn't believe. Um, most ridiculous story of my life. Um, but anyhow, so and, <laughs> yeah. Email holes aside, uh, she uh, ended up saying uh, that she would uh, represent me and uh, we kind of just went from there. And then I didn't have to worry about poking Orbit at all after that because she could do it. So it was it was quite a weird, um, surreal experience because you don't expect someone to come to you for something. You know, it's it's always that, that idea that you have to go hunting the opportunities. Um so I, I will, you know, it's one of those things that you've got to just be internally, eternally grateful for the opportunity and just marvel at the amount of luck that is involved with that having come your way instead of somebody else's way. Like that's really very uh, humbling and it's still internally wow, even all of these months later. Yeah, that's that's an incredible opportunity. And I'm glad you got that email. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, like the one from Julie disappearing because I queried her about a different book. Um, and uh, I told Sam that I had done so. And she asked me one day, you know, did you hear back from Julie? Um, and I said, oh, no. Uh, I So I guess she does it. She's not interested. And that's fine. It's not a problem. She goes, oh, she usually writes back, though. Let me just double check. And so she I just asked Julie whether she got my email. And she says, oh, no, I never got an email. So I'm like, okay. So I sent the query again. And again, nothing. At which point I'm just like, no, it's, it's all good. It's all good. She was just being polite. It's it's fine. She's not interested in this book and that's okay. And so I just left it. Um, and then when the Orbit stuff happened and Sam got in contact with her, she goes, oh, do you remember my friend Devin? And she goes, oh, yeah, I really liked her thing. And I asked her for the full manuscript, but she never wrote back to me. And I never got that. <laughs> oh, <either>. no. <laughs> Devin, I think you might need a new email. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So it's like these these opportunities that I almost entirely missed because of my email. And it's just like, ah! So guys, this does actually happen sometimes. These emails genuinely, genuinely went missing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And so I guess now that 
you're working with the traditional publisher. Uh, you have editors uh, helping, or at least an editor helping you with your story. Uh, what's changed in We Ride the Storm since the self-published version? Well, um, so it has probably, let's see, it's got about two extra chapters. Um, so it has a new first chapter. Now, the new first chapter was a decision that we made based on the fact that starting where it did, uh, it gave people a slightly false idea of how grim and dark the book actually is, because it used to start um, with uh, Ra chopping off a head uh, with quite gruesome detail, um, which is a lovely place to start, uh, you know, like in a, wow, that's a thing. Uh, but ultimately, it's not something they do for a gruesome reason. You know, they do it for, uh, it's a respectful death rite. Um, and, it's, a and very, so they, it's a very polite beheading. Yes, yes. They are very, they're very polite about their beheadings. And, and they do it for a very good and respectful reason. Um, but ultimately, it did give a particular idea of how the book was going to go Um and, and paint it as being a lot grimmer and darker than it actually is. Uh, so ultimately, we ended up adding a new chapter on the front. Um, uh, also, because it's uh, it's um, Miko's chapter, because she is the one whose world we're actually in. Uh, you know, she is the, the person, uh, our point of view, in the Empire. Uh, so grounding in the actual location in which the majority of the story takes place, uh, as opposed to uh, Ra was always starting somewhere where we never actually go back to. So there was multiple reasons for that. Um, so there's now, yeah, there's a new first chapter. Uh, there's most of the changes are fairly superficial in that, like the plot is all the same. The characters are mostly the same. Um, there is some changes to the way that uh, Ra's story ultimately unfolds um, to make him a little bit more, I don't know, some people found him to be a bit difficult to kind of get along with because he was just so intensely stubborn. <laughs> He's still intensely stubborn, but he makes a lot more sense now, <laughs> um, which is lovely. Um, so most of it is, yeah, that kind of the, the, the smaller stuff and yeah, like the two additional chapters, but Ultimately, it is uh, more or less the same book. It just has, it, it's been reframed in a couple of different places and just generally tidied up, you know, the even just the uh, year or two that's passed since I wrote it, you know, you're constantly learning and growing as an author. So I was able to kind of clean up a few bits that I went, oh, that doesn't quite work or whatever. But for the most part, I would say you probably don't have to reread it in order to like keep moving with the series, but it probably still good to do to be up to date with little things that change. I know I'm definitely planning on grabbing the updated version and reading that as a refresher. And also that cover art is gorgeous and <laughs> I need it. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? You know, I was really quite afraid uh, with the idea of, of, getting a new cover because I loved my old covers so much. It was just, uh, you know, John Anthony Giovanni did an amazing job on it and it was just so beautiful and had such energy to it and people had responded so well to it. Um, so when I uh, announced that I had uh, um, traditional deal for this, everyone's first question was, 
are they going to keep the cover? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure they're not. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. Um, so it was it was kind of a bit nerve wracking for me thinking about, well, what what are the people who already love this series and already love this book going to think about a new piece of cover art for it? Because, you know, you see this happen a lot in the community whenever a self-published book is picked up by a traditional publisher. There is always so much discussion about this. So I think I've been really fortunate in able to have two amazing covers for the one book and being equally in love with and proud of both of them because that's just, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, uh, you have some fantastic art to go with your series. Yeah. Um, And so uh, I guess speaking of how this has been repackaged and republished uh, is it's kind of unusual, right? Is this a seven book contract that you got? Yeah. So that was, that was a big shock. Um, when uh, Julie called me, my agent, um, to say that they were interested in it. Um, although initially it was actually a six book contract because they didn't realize that the Reborn Empire was four books. So I, I had an absolute panic attack <laughs> having to say to my agent, actually that six book contract you're offering me, it should be seven. <clears throat> yeah, just, just go ask them for seven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it was just, the, the, these are the times when you have to be like, I am so glad I have an agent because um, I, I can't, imagine having had to have that conversation, like to say, it's so great that you're offering me six, but can we make it seven? Or, you know, she can make it sound really casual and totally okay and fine and, and whatever. Yeah. That's gotta be a ton of work. So you found out in, let's say early 2019, late 2018, uh, that this was going to be a thing and your first, I guess, ebook launch is now so that's that's not a lot of time uh, to do seven books well not seven books but at least what four books that's a lot yeah it was a lot of work I actually so they they initially contacted me in December or January but it wasn't until March late March um where they actually made me the offer uh you know things work quite slowly in traditional publishing and um, I actually had to pull the launch of We Lie With Death before I knew whether there was going to be a contract for sure or not. So by that point, they had asked me to hold off on it while they were making their decisions. Um, So, you know, it was one of those, I'm sure they wouldn't do that if they weren't really serious about it, but it could still have fallen through. And I would have just had to then, you know, go ahead with the launch of We We Lie With Death uh, late. uh, yeah, so that so that was um, yeah, so late late March, but it was still a, a couple of months after that. By the time we were into you know edits for uh, we we ride the storm, um, and by the time we'd gone through the various revisional and line edits for that, and then I, it was I ended up with something truly ridiculous, like three weeks per book to revise, um, which, you know, given my obsessive work ethic is doable. Um, 
but one of them needed such an epic, epic overhaul that in three weeks I ended up rewriting 70,000 words of that book, which was just really intense because I also had, um, I think I had copy edits for We Ride the Storm at the same time and it was just, and line edits, they just kept stacking the deadlines on top of each other and being like, are you sure you're okay? Like, yes, I can do this. I can do this. (laughs) And, you know, by the time I'd gotten through it, I was definitely feeling very, um, eh. Yeah, I mean, what what does that look like? Like, what's a typical work day or work week like on that kind of time crunch? On that time, kind of time crunch, it is 16 hours a day in front of my computer. So it is, I get up in the morning, uh, my partner takes our uh, four-year-old to childcare, I sit down at my computer and I work and I move only to go and get tea and snacks. Uh, and fortunately I invested in a Fitbit that occasionally vibrates on my wrist to tell me to get off my ass, uh, to, to, you know, you know, do a couple of laps of the house. Cause otherwise I wouldn't even do that. Uh, and then, you know, uh, partner brings child home, partner makes dinner, brings me dinner. I keep working. Uh, I work through, you know, I, I stop for half an hour to put my child in bed and then I sit down and I keep working until I am too tired to keep going, usually around 11 or 12 o'clock at night. And then I go to bed and then I get up the next day and I do it again. So I did that for, uh, I think it was a total of uh, seven or eight weeks um, uh, in the kind of, what is it, like September, October of uh, 2019. And it was really really intense. And like, as much as I have always been a super obsessive work person who will work at every opportunity rather than do something else, um, you know, I found that it affected me a lot more than I thought it would. Uh, the isolation of that and the, the, the stress of that, uh, you know, I, I thought it would be, cause it was only for a short time. I thought, Oh, it'll be fine. It's not gonna, not gonna be an issue, but you know, I could really feel um, my mental health slipping, you know, like the the desperation with which I, I craved talking to people uh, and uh, just the, the, the smallest things that I could have uh, a panicky meltdown over that really were just ridiculously tiny. And I was like, wow, this, this, I didn't expect this. I should have, but I didn't. And um, yeah, so I, I will, Make every effort never to have to do that again. Yeah, I think uh, understandably. Yeah. That, that sounds really intense. Oh, and, and you know, nobody nobody should be uh, blaming my publishers or my editor for this. You know, they, they said to me, honestly, this schedule is really ridiculous. And uh, you, you really like we should, we should, we should move publication dates and shift things around and, and, and everything. And they checked in with me and, and all the things, it was entirely me saying, no, I can do this. I can totally do this. It's fine. Uh, but what <laughs> led to this issue, you know, everybody was, was being really wonderful and, and, and caring of me and checking in with me and making sure that I was okay. And telling me to take breaks. Um, it was, it was just me going, oh, I'm going to get this done. And, I'm going to get through this. And, you know, I did, but, uh, 
yeah, it was, it was, it was an experience and it was a good learning experience in that regard to, to be able to go, okay, at the end of that, you know what, taking mental health breaks is, is a thing. Everybody do it. Yeah. Uh, hey, Devin. Take mm-hmm. a break. <laughs> <laughs> Shall do. <laughs> yeah. Well, moving on uh, from talking about working on many projects to talking about more of your projects. <laughs> um, so something uh, pretty unique about you is you also are involved at least somewhat in audio drama, which mm. at least to my knowledge, I can't think of many other traditionally published authors who have done that. So I think, do you have any audio drama plans for this world you've created with We Ride the Storm and the Vengeance trilogy? I sure do. Um, quite a few, although only one that is actually currently uh, you know, being written and planned and, and uh, produced. Uh, so I, I spoke a little bit earlier about the uh, character of mine that's been in the world that is um, been investigating the magic system, trying to understand the magic system. Uh, he's referenced in We Ride the Storm as the Witch Doctor, uh, but uh, his real name is Torvash, uh, and he is an obsessive uh, researcher uh, who rather unethically tests things. Uh, in order to find out how they work. Uh, and so I am planning a, a series uh, called, or I've, I've written most of the series called um, The 59 Bodies of Saki Laroth. Uh, Saki Laroth is a character who comes out of the Vengeance trilogy. Um, and uh, her story kind of continues through these audio dramas. So she is... Um, Unable to talk, she is entirely um, nonverbal. Uh, uh, based on uh, another book I have planned, <laughs> she's not born nonverbal. <laughs> it's a uh, it's it's a thing that happens to empaths, which are ninth incarnations of souls. When they maturate, uh, they go through a maturation process. They're unable to talk for a space of time, and hers ends up lasting indefinitely. So by the time we meet her in these audio dramas, she is unable to speak. So it is essentially the story of um, uh, Torvash dictating his scientific notes uh, to a um, uh, a man that's been with him for a long time who works as his scribe, Kocho, who is also uh, in uh, the Reborn Empire series briefly. Um and it's it's a way of us learning about how the magic system works, but an interesting way of learning how it works because we're also it's 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 a lot of things. It's not just a series of notes, but it's also um, this particular man, Torvash. He's not actually a man; he's immortal. He's one of the uh, original. Uh, they call them the Primera. They were the first race on the world that were made to be. Uh, perfect of of body and mind and unable to be killed, um, which makes them very cold, dispassionate, um, you know, uncaring of the mortals around them kind of individuals. Uh, But, you know, Saki is obsessed with this idea that he has to do his research ethically. And because she is super important to his research and he ends up not being able to do a lot of it without her, uh, he has to bend uh, his ethics around hers. And it's really quite an interesting sort of struggle. 
so in a lot of ways, it's a character story um, more than anything else, but it was a way I could do a character story while also exploring the scientific way they discover how the magic works. Because in a lot of ways, the magic system is actually just physical world science to them. You know, it's not it's not wibbly wobbly in any way. It has very set rules um, and they can discover it in using scientific method the way we would discover, you know, physics. I think uh, all the hard magic fantasy geeks out there are really excited hearing that, <laughs> uh, me included. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So uh, it's going to have more than one season, um, but uh, the first season, I think, I think it's 30... 30 episodes. They're only about five or six, uh, between five and 10 minutes each, each episode. Um, so really quite short, really quite simple. You know, it's, it's mostly just Torvash, uh, talking to Kocho most of the time. And, uh, Saki is present in physical sounds because she can't talk. So that's been a really interesting thing for my partner who does the sound production to uh, work in it, how to make a character have a physical presence when they cannot speak in an audio drama. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a really interesting challenge, though. Mm. And uh, this is not the only audio drama you've worked on with your partner either, is it? No, no. So uh, my partner is the uh, producer, creator, writer, and uh, one of the voices in uh, Among the Stars and Bones, which is uh, a xenoarchaeological uh, uh, science fiction story. Uh, and it was, you know, he's been wanting to do this for a really long time. And then he had uh, time off. Like He took long service leave. Uh, of his job in 2018 and just sat down and wrote this thing and it was just like okay here it is this, we're doing this we're doing this I'm like okay all right so I edit uh his scripts for him um which is a lot of fun because he lets me be really you know mean and rude about it <laughs> you know I don't have to pull my punches when I say this doesn't work no that doesn't work uh so it's it's a really it's really good to be able to be super honest in creative work with people. You know, he does the same thing back to me whenever I say, "Hey, what about this?" He goes, "Yeah, no, no, don't do that. That's awful." Um, so it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> it really has been a lot of fun to do, and really amazing to watch the whole process. His audio drama is a lot bigger and more involved than the one I'm planning. You know, he has what are they uh, five, six? Um, kind of major point of view voices with lots of minor characters. And uh, it's essentially a, a crew of xenoarchaeologists uh, you know, who are reporting, uh, sending in reports from uh, a, a distant world about what they're discovering. Uh, and they discover a mystery. They uh, arrive at a, a site and there's just thousands of dead aliens and they have no idea why they're all dead. Like, why do they all die like this? Uh, oh dear, are we in big trouble, you know, style of thing. And, you know, it all goes terribly bad as you can imagine. Um, and <laughs> yeah. the, but the, the amount of, uh, soundscape that goes into it just amazes me. You know, I watch him create layers and layers of sounds for the different environments that are behind 
you know, in the background behind each of the people as they're reporting and what those soundscapes say about the characters who are talking, you know, he considers like, well, this is, this is the woman who is in charge of the whole you know, operation. So, you know, what is the soundscape like for her? Okay. You know, so she, uh, misses her home, but, you know, and she's in like this, um, position of being able to have more of her own stuff because she's the boss lady. So she has a wooden desk, you know, so we're making the sounds like she has a wooden desk. She doesn't just have a metal desk. Like he makes those little decisions about, about how, you know, and you'd never notice, you probably, most people never notice, but it's really, really important to him. And subconsciously people pick up on tiny little things um, about the environment. Uh, and then, you know, when he has to layer things like explosions and whatever, it's just like, and creating the sounds of, of um, alien voices. That was a big thing, watching him create alien voices from various sounds and the amount of thought he put into the linguistics of how these aliens talk. So it was, it's been an amazing project to be part of. Like I, I just voice the computer. So <laughs> I just get to do my, my, uh, my very best GLaDOS impersonation um, and, and be a computer but uh and and edit the scripts but watching as he he does that has just been truly amazing and it's it's been really well received so i'm super proud of him and uh, and how well it's been going yeah and as an avid audio drama listener myself i've listened to it and the soundscape is very impressive i i know the amount of time it takes me to find one half second long sounds and edit that into this podcast is insane and so now scaling that up to what he has to do <laughs> i'm yeah. in awe yeah it's it's been a big thing and like i think his episodes are between i think they started closer to 30 minutes and have started blowing out towards 40 minutes the further he goes through the series so you know it's definitely getting kind of big <laughs> So one thing I always like to ask people is, uh, have you been reading any books lately that you would recommend? Uh, I guess since you're involved in audio drama, anything you've been listening to that I should add to my TBL or to be listened list? Oh, I think you have a much larger uh, knowledge of audio drama than I do. I would come to you for Rex rather than the other way around. <laughs> Everything I could tell you, you already know is amazing. Um, uh, but uh, I think in terms of books, uh, the most recent one I've been reading that has really surprised me, uh, that I've really thoroughly been enjoying, haven't finished it yet, uh, but I've been reading The Imaginary Corpse uh, by Tyler Hayes, um, which is unlike anything I have ever read before. You know, it is, it is, I don't even know how to describe it. You know, it's like a a, a, a imaginary friends noir like it's it's really quite impressive um a mashup of 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 genres you know when you when you're following a a hardened kind of gumshoe detective but he's a stuffed triceratops that's bright yellow it's like wait a minute what <laughs> but it's it's truly uh, glorious in that idea that all the characters because of the way the world is built uh they're all a bit broken. Um, and yet it's like, yeah, we are all sort of like broken people, but you know, we're all hurting, but we can still 
do the right thing and make the right choices and we can get through this together, which I think as, as a kind of message uh, is something that we, we really need more of uh, in, in the world. So that's been a really quite amazing uh, thing to read. Um, I, because of my ridiculous uh, workload recently, I haven't read anywhere near as many of the books as I want to, but I've got this little, uh, you know, my, my, my chibi red stack, as soon as this next set of edits is over, it's looking really glorious and I can't wait to dig into it. Yeah, I uh, know that feeling. <laughs> and then, uh, so uh, one final question before we go, uh, what's one thing you're ridiculously excited about? Uh, it could be anything, doesn't have to be books or work related or anything. Uh, just one thing you're excited about. Well, uh, given when we're recording this, as opposed to when this is going to be released, I'm going to say seeing Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I have tickets. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So if we're, people are in the future. We're re- recording this in November of, uh, of 2019. And I have my uh, tickets to the, the uh, midnight launch for Rise of Skywalker because I have been a lifelong Star Wars fan um, and do absolutely adore what they have done with the most recent trilogy. I, I loved The Last Jedi. I thought it was really wonderful uh, kind of character uh, work and deconstruction and construction of, of, of ideas. And, um, and I have watched the trailer for Rise of Skywalker like 20 times. And really just want to see it like now, please. (laughs) I usually don't get quite this excited about stuff. Like I was, you know, I was, I was all, oh, yay, that's really cool. When they did, uh, when they announced that they were doing Force Awakens, I'm like, okay, great. That looks fun. I'm going to go and see that. And I loved it. It was great. Um, And the same with Last Jedi. I went, wow, that looks really amazing. Great. I can't wait to see that. But I didn't get like super excited. Um, you know, and so this is, this is kind of a weird new experience for me that I'm this excited about going to see a movie, (laughs) but I really am. I can't wait. Yeah. And I definitely, uh, need to catch up. I still haven't seen The Last Jedi, (gasps) Uh, so I need to catch up. Yes, you really do. It's, uh, you know, I could probably talk about what I love about it for a very long time. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those movies that a lot of people like, uh, all of the the um, uh, issues that people have with it on online aside, it's like it's not a perfect movie. Like it's very rare that you get a movie that is perfect. But when a movie, um, you know, steps uh, kind of out of its 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 original, uh, like, like kind of sidesteps some of the the things that that uh, people didn't like about the original series of this and it really kind of modernizes and and brings what modern audiences are interested in rather than rehashing the um you know the old the old aspects of the stories i think that is that is something to really kind of celebrate like they it's still it's still a star wars movie in that great adventure uh, way that the original ones were but they have just kind of brought a few more kind of modern touches to it that really speak to me personally. So it's, it's definitely definitely, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful to look at. So it's definitely worth watching. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I missed, uh, it being on Netflix. So I guess I'll probably have to get Disney <sighs> plus and catch up. 
<laughs> you know, there's these like old fashioned things called DVDs that you can, you know, can you still borrow those things? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think I heard about that from uh, my great grandparents. <laughs> oh man. I still remember VHS. Don't make me feel old. Yeah. Well, I, I think that about wraps up everything I had. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to chat today, Devin. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it really has. Thank you so much for having me. You can find Devin Madsen on Twitter and Instagram as at Devin Madsen or on our website, devinmadsen.com. And while We Ride the Storm officially launches in June, the ebook is already available. There's a link in the show notes if you want to read it now. If you like your fantasy epic with cool magic and gripping characters, I think you'll really enjoy it. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyn.com or on Twitter and Instagram at thefantasyn. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. We'd love to keep improving the podcast. And you get early access to episodes and bonus content, like the list of some of our favorite feel-good fantasy books we just posted. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. We have some exciting interviews in store this month that I think you'll really enjoy. That's all for this week. See you next time.